You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Right now. A reading from the book of 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then John chapter 2, very popular story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also, like as an afterthought, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, right away, Mary's like, we have to have wine at this party. I cannot be with these people without it. No, that's not what's going on here. She says to Jesus, oh, now everybody amens. We have problems. We have problems. Jeff, this church has problems. Where am I? They have no wine. Right, right, right. And Jesus said to her very politely, woman. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) We are in so much trouble. We've done nothing good for a long time. What does this have to do with me? I know Jesus, everything. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This would be the equivalent of us filling up this baptismal tank behind me with water. That's what, the, that's what those pots were there for, for baptisms. So it would be like me being at a wedding, being like, okay, everybody stop playing Shut Up and Dance with Me by Walk the Moon. We're going to fill up the baptismal tank with 180 gallons of water. Why? It's a weird command. Jesus said to the servants, fill it with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What a powerful section of scripture that is. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom, not the servants and not Jesus, and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, that's a very nice interpretation of that text, when they've drunk freely and can't taste anymore, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Jesus left us with bread and wine, everybody. He left us with carbs and alcohol because he knew it would just be stressful. And so we would need to eat and have a drink every once in a while. He's like, what can I leave them with 
that will get them through until I come back, which apparently is taking a very long time. He's not coming back. No, I'm just kidding. Whew. We're off to a good start. Let's just bring the worship team back up here again. I shouldn't be up here right now. Now, we're in the middle of a series that is opening up the year for us, and the series is called Don't Forget to Pack, you know, starting well to finish strong. And I don't want this series to be seen as just a one-off. This is how we believe the Spirit is going to get us to December well. And when we look back on the year, we will say that we have finished strong because we started out well. And the first thing we packed on this trip of 2022 was a mirror. And we said, the mirror is self-awareness. People needing to walk around aware of themselves, aware of what we're saying, aware of how we come across to other people, aware of how our thoughts and opinions, given the way that we give them, might affect others and what they're going through that you don't know they're going through. Self-awareness is very important. We talked about being open to reason. I said to the men yesterday at our men's breakfast that being open to reason simply means all of those parts of your life that you are the most convinced about, the most irrefutable about, the things in your life that you say right now, I will never change my mind about this, unless somebody else other than you adjusts those things once in a while, you will never be your true self. It's not the things that we kind of believe it's the stuff that we say right now, I will never change my mind about this. That attitude is not open to reason. And God will send people that literally grind your gears to adjust some of those things in your life. And if you have good self-awareness, you will say, okay, God, like Paul, thank you for sending the thorn in my flesh. I need to make some adjustments. But only self-aware people can become their true self because only self-aware people are open to reason. The following week, we talked about packing an empty suitcase. And I was reminded this morning when I was like, how do I summarize that in one sentence? I was reminded this morning of Family Night of Music when Hadley sang the song that she wrote, because the Zrodlowskis are overachievers in every way, shape, and form, and their kids write Christian hits all of the time. But one of the lines in the song, she said, I'm making room in my room for love. I'm taking things out of my room so that there's room in my room for love. God tells children things that children tell us because we have an easier time hearing it from children than we would if God tried to tell us. And the empty suitcase is what is so packed in my life that I can't receive the gifts of other people who don't look like me? Unless I receive gifts, unless I receive insight, unless I receive wisdom, unless I receive affirmation, unless I receive encouragement, unless I receive exhortation from people who don't look like me, act like me, think like me, have my morals and values, my political views, unless people that are completely different than me are allowed to speak into my life, I will never be the person God created me to be. Because God will never let us become our true self by ourselves. because God isn't his self by himself. He's father, he's son, and he's, so he wants us to be like him. He wants us to be like they, him. Today, we're packing a serving bowl. Not because we might get nauseous on the trip. 
<laughs> as soon as Ian showed me that picture, I was like, that's the first thing I thought of. You could have put like a ladle in it or something. I don't know. We, we don't. Oh, my gosh. I just, almost made a, I just almost made a terrible joke about how, as men, we don't know about serving bowls. But I didn't make it because that wouldn't have been politically correct. It's dangerous up here right now. I feel people looking at me. I don't even want to look at them. I honestly would rather look at you right now for the rest of the entire service. Okay. We need to realize that people, and you've heard me say this before, people are not assets getting us to where we want to be or liabilities keeping us from where we want to be. If we look at people as either assets or liabilities, we are users, we're not servants. We should be the path that is open to others to be who they're supposed to be. When, when Stephanie sings the song, you made a way where there was no way, we should be the way that is made in somebody else's life for them to get through what they're going through to be their true self. We are the way where there was no way for somebody else's life. And in order to be that way, we have to make ourselves available to other people to be a path. So you say, man, I just feel like I'm getting walked on all the time. You're a path. <laughs> That's a good thing. Imagine paths in the woods where, like, I don't want to get walked on anymore. Like, that wouldn't, we'd get lost. There's a way to get walked on that's wrong, and there's a way to get walked on that is exactly right. A way, a path, a way through. We're supposed to be that. We need to offer our lives in service to others. Instead of looking at people saying, they're getting me to where I need to be, or they're not getting me to where I need to be. So many sermons, so many sermons, you will hear the preacher talk about, think of the kind of person you want to be, and then surround yourself with those same kinds of people. If Jesus did that, he would be the savior of exactly nobody. If Jesus said, I want to be God's perfection, and he only hung out with people who were like that, who would he ever have hung out with? He just said no to the wedding invitation of the verse we just read. He would have said, I'm not going to go to that wedding because bad company ruins good morals. The whole idea, hang out with people who are where you want to be, is trash. It is not Christian. It's garbage. Because if we want to be like Jesus, then we should be hanging out with all the people that people like that don't hang out with. All right. My new thing is, that was such a good point, you're writing it down, and that's why you're not saying anything. So, that's, we're good. that's right. Thank you, Dan. People are not assets or liabilities. We are, for them. We need to be with those who other people say, I can't be with them if I want to get to where I'm going. That's exactly the kind of people we need to be with. Because where we're going is down into the muck and mire of sin with Jesus to seek and save those that are Okay, And you know why they're lost? Because people are saying, I'm not going to hang out with people who don't get me where I want to go. And so those people end up being lost, and it is the church's job to go to them and say, hey, you can be part of our fold. All right. I hope you're all thinking of people right now, right now, that you haven't hung out with, and now you're sitting there saying, maybe I should give them a call or a text. I hope that's happening. Our verse for the year is found in Haggai 2, and it's simply, my spirit remains in your midst. My spirit remains in your midst. 
why is this important for us? My spirit remains in your midst. It is simply because of this. We, for too long, have seen holiness as us having better behavior. That might be a part of what it means to be holy, that we have better behavior. It's definitely not less than good behavior, but it's certainly a lot more than just good behavior. Because people who don't know Jesus can have good behavior, but their life is not transformational. What we are are people who pray that our life would be transformational to other people's lives, that, that we wouldn't convert people, but we would play host to God's conversion over other people's lives, that we would invite God and Jesus and those people in so that Jesus can bring conversion to other people's lives in the hosting that we are providing. Our lives are meant to be the house where conversion happens even though we're not the ones who do the converting, only the Holy Spirit does. Amen? So what is holiness? Why is God's Spirit going to remain in our midst? Not just to make us feel better, not just to remind us of God's love, yes, those things, but also to make us the kinds of people whose lives make other people's lives more right. That's what holiness is. Holiness is not just good moral behavior. Holiness is when your life is the kind of life that just by virtue of being around you, other people's lives get better. For explainable reasons and for unexplainable reasons. Back in the Old Testament, holiness was, if you see a leper, don't go near the leper so that you can remain holy. But what did that do? That left the lepers lost. Jesus comes and embodies what holiness really means, and holiness really is the kind of life where when holiness touches that which is lost, that which is lost becomes found, and Jesus is not contaminated. We used to say things like, my new Christian life is like white gloves, and the sin of the world is like a car engine. You don't work on the engine with white gloves on, then take the gloves off, because our hands need to get dirty. Our hands need to get dirty. We need to be involved in that. We need to work on that engine. We need to bring holiness to where holiness isn't. Any accusation we could level against another person, if we're right, that is just God affirming the fact that we need to be in their life. If you can think of, if you actually are right in your judgment against somebody else, and you're actually right, your rightness is God saying, now what are you going to do to help them? So if you really want to criticize, and you really want to blast people, and you really want to talk to your friends about how nasty people are, also be ready to go over their house. Otherwise, stop gossiping. Unless you're willing to be part of the problem, anything you say about anybody else is gossip. you got to become part of the problem so that you can become part of the solution so that you can be like Jesus. Okay? Do you agree? Thank you, Jeff. So be holy as I am holy. We've heard that verse and said, I can't be holy like he's holy. I'm not good enough. It's because we have the wrong idea of what holiness is. Being holy as he is holy is, you know, Bishop Ed Gunger said this a long time ago when he came here. A holy person is the kind of person where when you step into, in front of somebody else, you say, you live like you're saying to that person, oh, there you are, as opposed to, oh, here I am. Right, so when I'm not trying, I'm the kind of person who walks into the room and I'm like, okay, everybody, this party's cool now, I'm here. I've made it, everything is okay. 
now we can get started on things. That's not a holy attitude. A holy attitude is when, when you're done hanging out with somebody, they sit there and say, that person saw me in ways that nobody else has. They saw me and said, there you are. I've been waiting to see you. We're going to talk about how Jesus was like that in a moment. In Haggai 2, where our verse comes from, there's a, there's a verse I want to focus on today. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in. And we talked about that last week. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then this, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. I want to talk about this today with our other verses that we've read. The silver and the gold are mine. We've heard this taught often that God is saying, the silver and the gold of those nations, it really belongs to me, and I'm going to give it all to you. But that's not what he's saying at all, because that attitude would not be like Jesus at all. What he's saying is, all the silver and all the gold is mine, including what's in your pocketbook, wallet, and bank account right now. Or as Bishop Q from Kansas would say, the money in my billfold, which I never heard that before. He's like, I lost my billfold. And I'm like, that sounds boring. I don't even know what that is. He's like, it's like, you would call it a wallet. I'm like, why not? Okay. I'm like, I'm saying to the, I'm like, he means his wallet. He's not from around here. He's from Kansas. (laughs) He's saying the silver and gold is mine. Every piece of silver, every piece of gold belongs to God. Even the gold that the righteous have, even the money that we have belongs to God. He's laying claim, saying that all the gold that exists in the earth is mine. But why is it in our bank accounts then? If it belongs to God, why is it in our bank accounts? This is simple, but it's so simple it's not that obvious. God is saying all the silver and gold belongs to me, but you have it because I'm the kind of God who what I have, I offer. So you have all the silver and gold, even though it all belongs to me, because I give it. I offer it. I let you have it. I expect you to do with it what I would do with it. And what have I done with it so far? I've given it. (laughs) That's why I'm talking to you about the silver and gold that you have, saying that it's mine because it was mine, and I've given it to you. And if you're in my image, I expect you to do the exact same thing with it. He gives it, and so should we. But I don't want this to be just about silver and gold, because it's not. It's also allegorical for sanctification. Silver and gold are materials that have undergone a process of refining that has made them as precious as they are. It's one of the reasons why they are so precious, is because it's tough to get to, and they've gone through quite a bit to be what they are. And so what God is saying here, this is really not about money as much as it's about God has within himself a generosity that when he offers himself to the world, the world becomes refined like silver and the world becomes refined. It becomes more of what it's supposed to be. Jesus is the kind of human that when he's around you, his generosity oozing from all parts of himself make you refined as silver and gold. 
So what God is saying is, yes, he's talking about money, but he's also talking about the things that make for righteousness, the things that make for justice, the things that make for equity, the things that make for reconciliation, the things that make for healing. They belong to me, and I've given them to you. That's why we're also read about the gifts of the Spirit this morning. Because the gifts of the Spirit are the silver and gold that God has given to us to go into all the world and make it right and make it equitable and make it holy and make it just and not stand for injustice. Generosity is not simply the willingness to give because some people can give for very ungenerous reasons. As a matter of fact, some people give money so they don't have to offer time. Right? You know what? This guy's life is falling apart. He doesn't have much going on. I'm, I'm going to pay his rent for him so that I don't have to invite him over for dinner. I can write off that I've done something good. Right? So, so you could be giving and have it not be generous. Of course. We know this. That's because generosity is really a disposition. It's a virtue. It's a character trait. It's not just, if we only see generosity in the realm of money, then we're materialists. Right? Generosity is, is an attitude. Generosity is a way that you carry yourself. It's a way that you speak to people. When people are around you and they feel like they can speak as much as you're speaking, it's because you're generous. Right now, Jacqueline's like, oh, well, somebody better learn to be generous up there with the microphone, right? <laughs> Generosity is a character trait. It's not an offering. It's a character trait. Generosity should, should, generosity should mark all of what we do as people. The way we talk, the way we think, the way we pray, the way we invite, the way that we are alive should be generous. We shouldn't always be thinking what other people are doing to us that are making our lives what it is. We should be thinking, how can my life make somebody else's life what it should be? That's generosity, and that involves money, but so much more than just money. How does God possess something? How does God possess something? How does God own something? God possesses, and you, you, should, you should write this one down, God possesses the way Jesus lives. God owns the way Jesus lives. God possesses the way that Jesus lives. And how does Jesus live? Jesus lives as total and complete offering. In every church, there's a cross, and that cross represents what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the poverty of God. The cross is what it looks like when God gives all that he has. Jesus' life is a life marked by pure offering. Right? We, we said this at the men's meeting. Jesus doesn't submit to the Father because there can't be hierarchy in the Trinity because that means that part of the Trinity has a higher position than another part of the Trinity, and then they wouldn't be equal. So Jesus doesn't, doesn't submit to the Father because the Father has a higher position. Jesus' submission is really offering. He's offering himself. Offering transcends any kind of hierarchy. Offering says, before you tell me what to do, I'm offering myself to you so you don't even have to tell me anything. Because I've already given myself to you. 
Offering is a higher quality, a higher standard, a higher ethic, a higher morale than, than submitting to authority is. Uh, offering is what we want to parent our kids to be. We want them to listen to our rules so that one day they freely offer themselves. Oh, you ready? Offering is like when you can take down the fence and everybody still lives within it without the fence up because they're offering themselves. We want to become the kind of church that is so mature that there is no need for an authoritative hierarchy because we're outdoing one another and showing honor. The fence can just deteriorate. We're not going to spend money on keeping the fence up anymore because the people in here stay in here because they want to. That's offering. That's offering. Jesus offers himself to the Father, and the Father offers himself to the Son. Jesus doesn't submit to God's authority any more than God parents Jesus because he has to. God is Father because he's offering himself to the Son, and Jesus is Son because he's offering himself to the Father. And why they do that, how they do that, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit frees you to offer yourself to the next person in your life. I know that's actually kind of deep. I hope, I hope we didn't say that so simply that we missed the depth of that. Being, offering yourself. I'll, I'll say it one more way that's really cool. Judas is getting ready to, deny, uh, to betray Jesus, right? The Bible tells us that. Judas is getting ready to betray Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Judas at the table? He says to him, go and do what you're going to do, right? Why does he do that? Jesus tells Judas to go do it so that Judas can't betray him. The minute, if Anthony's planning on betraying me, and I say, Anthony, go, go betray me right now. I've just stripped Anthony of the ability to betray me because I've already offered myself to it. So Jesus saves Judas by saying, before, wait, 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 wait before, before you do anything, go betray me. And now Judas is like, what? He knows he's already there. He's waiting for the band of soldiers. So Jesus offering yourself destroys the work of darkness. Before darkness could get up off the couch and do something, we've already put ourselves there. Before you betray me, I'm already there, Judas. Just, get, just bring the soldiers. Offering destroys the powers and principalities. Being generous with our life. Offering our life. One, one of the classic arguments that Jacqueline and I have is like me saying, and I think I'm all noble for this. I'm like, Jacqueline, hey, the, you know, Theo's crying, Sophia's tearing up the house, and I'll be like, you know, if there's anything you need me to do, just let me know. And only women just laugh because I'm learning how that's a, a very horrible thing to say out loud. <laughs> and what is her response going to be? Don't wait for me to tell you. Just come up and do something. You ready? Watch. I'm asking to be, I'm willing to be submissive, but not offering. I'm willing to say, if there's something, you stand up there in the chaos. I'll be down here watching the game. If you need me, I'm willing to come up. That's a life of submission. That's not a life of offering. A life of offering says, TV, you're off. I hear those kids. I'm going up, and I'm going to do whatever needs to be done before I'm asked. Yeah. Pia, got it. You know what I'm saying? I won't say the things that I, 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 just, I just gave a version of Jacqueline that is very holy. 
She says this other ways too. <laughs> I would be so scared to death of Donna. I'm not even. Like I said, uh, the, 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 the sliding glass door on my patio is always open for you if you need to escape into my house. Yeah, two. I have two down there so I can switch off. <laughs> Offering trumps hierarchy. It trumps the power that forces you to do something. It's offering. It costs a lot more than being submissive does, but it also changes a lot more than being submissive does. People who insist on a, an authoritative hierarchy are also speaking immaturity over their own lives. Because God wants us to grow up from conventional authority into a life of offering, which is the apex, the height of Christian maturity is doing because we're following Jesus, not being told. That's generosity. It has nothing to do with just money. It has everything to do with everything else. So how do we see the generosity of Jesus in this story of the wedding at Cana? Three very simple ways. The first, well, I shouldn't say that, I mean, five simple ways. I'll talk about three in a second. The first two are simply this. Jesus was invited to a party. That speaks to his generosity. Jesus is the kind of, now, now how many people have ever said they're busy before? Okay. <laughs> Just imagine telling Jesus you're busy. And imagine not realizing it's Jesus. Be like, man, you know, these people invited me over to their house and I was just too busy to go. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you were too busy. What do you have to do? Well, you know, the kids and the laundry and, you know, I got to, it's, it's like, you know, gutter season. I got to clean my gutters. And Jesus is like, right, I have three years to alter the course of human history, and I went to the wedding. What are you busy about? Jesus is invited because he's the kind of person who people want where they are. So let's just start and ask ourselves, are we generous enough with our demeanor, our body language, the way we hold ourselves in front of somebody else's life? Are we generous with those things to the point where we get invited? Now, yes, I obviously know there are injustices where there are just certain kinds of people who seem to not get invited places, not because of their character or generosity, just because the world acclimates itself to certain personalities over others. I'm, that's, I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking in a general rule. When you hold yourself well before others, people want you where they are. He was invited. And then part two to that, of his generosity, is that he went. These days, that's unimaginable to people. He went? He did something other than stay home on a Friday? Did he? It's like Jesus went. And we get the impression, well, we'll talk about his, what his being there means. But we just have to start there. That is, that is kindergarten. That is elementary school of generosity. Are we the kinds of people who present ourselves to the world in a way that people want to invite us? And then when we get the invitation, do we say yes to it without hoping that a snowstorm comes or somebody there gets sick? Listen, we've said this a lot of times, but there's nothing more exciting than that text message where it's like, hey, Bill, I know you were supposed to come over for dinner tonight, but we're not feeling well. We have to reschedule. And you're like, oh, darn, I'm so sorry. And then you're like, yes. What? Yes. Let's 
what do you want to do? Let's get sushi. Like, I don't even know what to do. We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be that way. So he held himself before the world in a way where people said, we want him there. And his disciples. Because they were becoming like him. That's, that's a plus 12. <laughs> that is a plus 12. These guys are living right when somebody who's having a seven-day wedding invites somebody with a plus 12. You know how many plates that is? Twelve more. You know why the wine ran out? Because they came. You know you're good when people invite your friends because they know you well enough to know people who are friends with you must be fun also. All right. All right. So three areas of generosity that we see besides the two that I just said. The gift of Christ makes us generous. One, in awareness and flexibility. Awareness and flexibility. Mary was at this party, an invited guest. Mary also had a busy life. This was her night out. There's no mention of Joseph being there. Mary went. Some people could say, well, didn't Joseph pass away? At some point he did, but maybe not at this point. Maybe Mary just needed time. She needed me time. I'm raising the Savior of the world. And then she gets there, and Jesus is like, hey, Mom. It's like, are you serious? They invited you and all of your friends. I'm going home. She's there relaxing, enjoying, celebrating. And she recognizes that something just happened where in that culture, this new couple's reputation could be ruined for a very long time. She sees where there's an opportunity to serve. Let me just tell you, awareness in and of itself is generosity. Awareness in and of itself is generosity. When you have people over your house and you know that, I don't know, the couple over your house or the person over your house is really going through a tough financial time. Sometimes somebody like that doesn't want to, like, get up and be the first one to go get chips or go get that second helping of whatever. A generous person, a generous host, makes it so easy for people to make themselves at home in their home where they never have to feel awkward about anything. Something as small as that. Like when you think of all the things that you're supposed to say in a sermon, a simple, hey, there's one more piece of chicken left. Dude, have it. Have it or we're throwing it in the garbage. Like I'm taking it and I'm going to throw it in the garbage unless you have it. Fine, fine, I'll have it. Making people feel okay having, being, living comfortably in your presence is awareness. But Mary also had flexibility. Mary was right that they ran out of wine, and Mary was right that only Jesus could do something about this now. It's not like they could go on a beer run to mobile. I'm assuming filling up wineskins takes some time. All right, who's going to crush the grapes? You know, so she knows her son is the only one who can do something, and Jesus' response is no. And Mary's response back is, Just do whatever he tells you. She 
Have you ever been right and you know that you're right and you can see exactly how things could get better if other people would just affirm your rightness? And how unbelievably manipulative and controlling we, we are when that happens. Not when you might be right, but in that one-off chance that you're actually right about something. That's when I almost get decapitated in my own house. It's not when Jack and I are arguing and I might be right. It's when I actually know I am that this level of confidence rises up in you and you stop at nothing. That's when you could die. Mary knows Boy, I raised you. I know what you're. I remember the time you messed up your room, and then just before I went in, you said "be clean," and the whole thing was clean. I remember that. Remember when we tried to put you in the bathtub and you didn't want to go in, so you stood on the water. I remember this. I know you can do this. She doesn't get in his face. She doesn't. All she says is, "Whatever he tells you to do, do it," because she knows that what. Whatever Jesus does next is going to be exactly right for that wedding. She doesn't push her own agenda. She's generous with her awareness and knowing that there's a problem and seeing it, and she's generous in her flexibility that it doesn't have to get fixed the way that she thinks it should. Write that down because it will save your marriage. I'm telling you right now. And also write it down because... An hour from now, I'm not going to follow my own advice. And no, I'm not saying I'm going to be right about something in an hour from now. I'm just making a point. Jack was like, oh, in an hour from now, you're going to be right about something? Probably not. I'm so glad you're wearing a mask because I can't see you cursing me out from here with it on. It just looks like you're smiling. We ruin things the most when we're right. Because we throw our rightness around like the stone in David's sling. Which means we treat the people in our life that are wrong like Goliath. Okay, next. The gift of Christ makes us generous in the odd and the ordinary. The servants are there, and they're told to fill up stone water jars. Why? Why? There's not going to be a baptism tonight, Jesus. Why are we doing this? But they are generous in the odd. You ready? This is so prevalent right now in our life and in our culture. They offer themselves even to something they don't understand. We, we don't just eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil now. We have, like, we tailgate at the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil right now. We park our cars and put on music, and we live at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have thanksgiving at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't do anything until we understand it now. And here's the servant saying, fill up the water jars. First of all, that's 180 gallons of water. We don't have Poland Springs in the back. We have to go to a well, Jesus, and... Do this for hours. Where are you? He's like, I'll, I'll just be right here. I was invited to the wedding. I'll hang out until you guys get back. Four days from now. So they lug all the water in, but they're generous in that they offer themselves to something, even if they don't quite understand. It's odd. So what? So what if it doesn't make sense to you? Offer yourself anyway. 
So much of what we deal with isn't in the Bible, and Jesus is constantly offering himself to things that he's like, this is so weird. I wrote a perfect book, and you're managing to have situations that aren't in it. You're impressive. You're impressively odd people. But yet he offers. So they fill up the water jars, and they fill it up with water. We're working so hard to fill something up with water? That's the ordinary. Listen, we are willing to offer ourselves to somebody. <laughs> if somebody put a gun to my head, I would offer my life for the Lord. But if my wife asks me to clean the dishes, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I would offer my body to be burned for Jesus. But if Maddie and Anthony invite us over to their house this Friday, we have something to do. We're not available. It's funny how we love offering ourselves in the extraordinary. But when it comes to the ordinary, which is 95% of our life, we will submit at best, rebel at worst, but never offer. But never offer. Jesus would rather us give up the 5% of the extraordinary and offer ourselves in the ordinary. The world would change tomorrow. It would change tomorrow. They filled it up with water. We're doing all this work for water. Uh, Jesus, the question was we don't have wine. Nobody wants to drink more water right now. And like maybe they thought Jesus, like they finished the wine. Maybe they're all dehydrated. And Jesus like, I don't want them waking up with a hangover tomorrow. So let's just get the water going out here. In not understanding what they were doing, and in the ordinary, these servants saved the reputation of a newlywed couple. A reputation that if damaged that night, would have broken the brittleness of a new marriage. They saved it from happening by being, by, by being generous in the odd and in the ordinary. If you think the next place for you to offer yourself that comes up, if you think in that moment that this has nothing to do with the most important things in my life, read this story. The smallest item of offering yourself has everything to do with your destiny as a human being. Serving is your destiny as a human being. Somebody said to me, how do I know, how do I know what my, my, my destiny is? How do I know what my specific calling is? It's easy. It's to be like Jesus. That's it. It's the same for everybody. You don't need to buy the books anymore. I'll write one, one sentence. Your destiny is to be like Christ. Number one bestseller at Salem Tabernacle only. And most of you could actually get through that book this year. I'll be here all week. Tip the bartender. All right. And finally, the gift of Christ makes us generous in other remembering. The way you hear this is self-forgetfulness, but I like the inverse better, other remembering. You ready? Every single person, Mary, Jesus, the disciples, and the servants all knew what just happened with that water. The master of the feast drinks the water become wine, and right away he says, bring the bridegroom. This guy's amazing. Bridegroom had nothing to do with it. All he had to do with that is run out of wine. That was his role in this story is to mess up. Everybody else knows we, the, the servants are sweating 
bullets. They're like, we just lugged all of this water. No one thanks us for it. Mary's like, this whole thing was my idea. Nobody's giving me credit for it. Jesus is like, shut up everybody. I went like this, and now you have 180 gallons of wine just because I did that. Watch what happens with you if I do this. Nobody ever at any point in this story tries to get credit for it. They all let the groom take the credit. Do not let your good works be seen by others. Do them, and when you hide them, that hiding of them manifests the glory of God. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. They remembered other people. They boosted that married couple up so much in that moment. They went from almost being despised and made fun of to being hailed as people who are so sophisticated that you served the good wine first and then better wine second. If I was, now see, I'm cynical. If I was that bridegroom, I'd be like, Jesus, now you set me up for a life where I have to live up to this. I'm going to fail this whole community tomorrow. Can you keep going like this over my life? And Jesus is like, I will. You ready? I close with this. The gifts of the Spirit are given to us to do what Jesus did at that wedding, to keep the party going. That's it. Our service to the world is to make the world glad, to keep the party going in the middle of tragedy, crisis, ups and downs, to keep the romance connected, and to keep the party going. The gifts of the Spirit are not given to tear people up, show them how wrong they are, to to figure out how right we are so we know. Like I guess it it was Rowan Williams who said, the church uses the gifts of the Spirit to prop themselves up, to make themselves so righteous that they know who to say no to. That so much of the church has defined itself by saying who can't come in here. He says, no, 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 the gifts of the Spirit are given to us by God so that we can turn the world's water into wine and keep the party going, so that we can bring the Holy Spirit to other people and bring it to them through water, through the ordinary, not the extraordinary. If all the good things in your life happen in extraordinary moments, we will exhaust ourselves trying to create extraordinary moments. But when Jesus does miraculous, glory-manifesting miracles in the crumbs and bubbles of our ordinary life, all we have to do is wake up and look around, and there's the potential for something amazing to happen again. Let's stand to our feet this morning. And how does he keep the party going for us? Worship team, we're we're going to close here, so you don't need to do another song. How does he keep the party going for us? He doesn't turn water into wine anymore because he knows us better by now. (laughs) But what he does do is something cooler than turning water into wine. He turns bread and juice into himself. Isn't it so funny that we believe that Jesus could turn water into wine, but then we get all upset when people say that the bread and the cup become the body of Christ? We, like, defend alcohol before we defend Jesus' miracles. Why? Let's not be like that. He does something to this every Sunday because something in us runs out by the end of the week. Those weddings were seven days. By the third day, it ran out. You think by the time we get here seven days later on Sunday, we are empty. 
And what does he do? He takes ordinary materials and he waves his hand over it again and he turns something normal into something extraordinary and he offers it to us so that we go out there and we look at things that are running out in people's lives and we speak gladness into it. We speak joy into it. We become joy for people. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed and the party was over, you took this bread and you took this cup and you said, this is my body, which is given to you. As often as you come to this table, come in remembrance of me. And after supper, you took the cup of wine and you did something even more amazing. You said, this wine is now the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray right now that you would do what you did at the wedding in Cana, that you would turn this juice and this bread and all of our hands into the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, the only way to keep this party going. And I pray that you would turn us into the wine and joy of gladness for other people so that the, their party can keep going, that we can bring that light and that color and that life into dark situations and make generosity happen in other people because you've made generosity happen in us. And so we pray all these things. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.